Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it's hard to believe we've been having weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals has links to purchase the source material behind our adapted film discussions. Your purchases there help support the show at no extra cost. For the entirety of Season 11, we featured films directed by women. The only exceptions were some of our member bonus episodes. We talked about the lure for our horror debuts series, which is a very loose adaptation of The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen. Definitely miles from the Disney versions. <laughs> for our 10-year anniversary series, we covered We Need to Talk About Kevin, taken from the Lionel Shriver novel. Man, that was brilliant. And horrifying. Yeah. The Journalist series included Merrily We Go to Hell and The Weight of Water, adapted from Anita Shreve's bestseller. We filled some gaps in previous series with member bonus episodes on adaptations like Malcolm X, Mr. Blandings Builds His Dream House, Cactus Flower, Wild at Heart, Life Force, and The Blues Brothers. Our John Hurd series looked at a trio of adaptations, Chilly Scenes of Winter from the novel by Ann Beatty, Awakenings based on Oliver Sacks' nonfiction book, and Rambling Rose adapted from the Calder Willingham novel. Two films in our coming-of-age debut series were adapted from books, The Virgin Suicides from Jeffrey Eugenides and The Diary of a Teenage Girl, Phoebe Gluckner's graphic novel. We had Queen of Cotway for our sports series based on Tim Crothers' nonfiction book. And Clueless kicked off our 90s comedy series, loosely adapted from Jane Austen's Emma. It totally took place in the 90s, though. <laughs> Find all of these books and more adaptations on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Awakenings is over. The chemical window closed. Does he ever speak to you? Of course not. Not in words. No change dated 9-11-44. Your patients, doctor, haven't moved in decades. What I believe, what I know, is these people are alive inside. How do you know that, doctor? I know it. I just wanted to say to you, I preferred your explanation. At 200 milligrams, he showed no response. Maybe he needs more. Maybe he needs less. John Hurd. This is the next in our John Hurd series. And John Hurd is further cementing his role as a performer that is also a jerk. <laughs> well, uh, he's not as jerky as he was in Big. That's right. But he is, he is the, the, he's, he's like boss level. Right. We've got to overcome that's And now that we've talked about Uncharted, every antagonist is actually just a mid-level boss to me. Because <laughs> video game. <laughs> uh, John Hurd. Yeah, he is. He is the oh, what would you say that he's like the director of this hospital? Because there's also the board. And, and when I, I feel like there's that one guy when they're doing the initial interview that is ahead of who's like above John Hurd, but we just never see him again, except maybe, maybe he's in the room in some of the big meetings and stuff, but he's not ever pointed out as much as he is in that inter- in that initial interview scene. Yeah. I think he's like the director of, of medicine, right? Like he's the director of the, the doctors, right? Like there, the, the board is ahead of the administration, but he's the head of the staff that actually provides care. That's my take. And then that other guy who's at who's like leading the interview, he's probably like that director of the hospital itself. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I, I love knowing so much about the workings within a hospital that we can pinpoint we this can so accurately. Yeah. Yes. We're so good at this. <laughs> and don't forget that this is also a Bradley Whitford vehicle. Baby Brad? <laughs> Baby Brad. Everybody, every hospital. I told my wife, I'm like, I thought Bradley Whitford was in this. And she's like, hey, we've been staring at him half the time. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> like, really? Where was he? He's that guy right there. <laughs> oh, my God. Little baby Bradley. Little baby Brad. <laughs> oh, so good. So good. Oh, yes. So that's where we are. We're talking about Awakenings 1990, American drama film based on Oliver Sacks' 1973 memoir of the same name. Yes, this is the second of two films that John Hurt did with Penny Marshall. So she's back in our uh, in our camp here for this series. And it's uh, it's fun to kind of talk about this film, especially coming on the heels of the one that she just had finished before that we talked about last week, Big, which was such a huge success for her. And now I guess this is her chance to dip into, you know, Oscar bait, Oscar nomination territory, that sort of thing. Okay. I guess that's kind of where we're going with this. Uh, okay. I guess that's okay. Well, she certainly didn't go back to the Jumpin' Jack Flash direction is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, and rightfully so. Hey, now. I know that was a favorite of yours. Hey, no. I know that was a favorite of yours. I That is one where uh, that I, I haven't gone. I haven't gone back to, to that ever. I feel I need to now just to uh, just to be able to, you know, kind of relive those times and decide, was it worth all that time in my youth watching this movie or <laughs> could I have been watching something a little bit better? 
Oh, Jumpin' Jack Flash. Jumpin' Jack Flash. Can't wait for that next Guilty Pleasure series. I can rent that on on Amazon right now. Oh, you're like doing it right now. It's coming. It's coming. Just you watch my my, uh, Letterboxd. uh, You're going to see it (laughs) pop up there. Whoopi Goldberg, one of her early vehicles and cemented my love for her at a young age. So, all right. (sighs) Anyway. (laughs) <laughs> Back to awakenings. <laughs> you just you could just you could just sit in that melancholia right now. Well, awakenings was rated PG thirteen when the film was released in theaters. PG thirteen. It's it's pretty safe with things. I suppose it's for the depictions of uh, kind of a mental institution. I'm not even sure why PG thirteen. I guess there is the f word that gets said once. And some yeah. some other words, but still, it's like I don't know. They probably watched big and said, "Whoa, Penny Marshall, you got your PG with one F word. This this one's going PG thirteen, right? Slow your roll, Marshall." <laughs> Yeah, I I think that's a I think the other thing is like, you know, we're displaying what some interpret as the horrors of the human condition. Like we're going into this institution and that's dark and hard and we of the ratings police think that that should be only 13-year-olds should see that. But speaking of 13-year-olds, nailing those grown-ups. Ching <laughs> PG baby. <laughs> <laughs> Want to watch this movie and help us out? Well, if you see an Apple or an Amazon link to this movie in our show notes or any movie that we talk about, just click on it. It will take you right to their site. You can rent or buy the movie. And when you do this, we get a little tiny piece in return. Win, win. And don't forget the merch store, truestory.fm slash TNR merch. Now I am afraid after last week, the Smutty Nose Island t-shirt has been fixed. So there was a window, I think, of about 35 minutes where you could have bought the broken, now antique collectible version of the Smutty Nose Island t-shirt. But now I'm afraid it's just the generic one. I don't know what Awakenings will bring us, but I'm pretty excited to see. I just still marvel that one of our top sellers, for whatever reason, is the Rusty the European (laughs) Tour shirt. That (laughs) does not stop selling. It does not stop selling. Are there a lot of Rusties who just love having that shirt? Like, (laughs) I I don't understand. But, hey, more power to you. And so far, the only person who has bought my favorite design, my favorite design, which is the black mold on the front door stained glass shirt, is me. No one else has bought that one. I don't care. I don't care. I'll buy more of it before we take that down. (laughs) Anyway, truestory.fm slash TNR merch. And, uh, hey, we want to hear from you. We would love to have a little audio review from you, and we'd love to include it in the show. Just send your thoughts on the movies we're talking about to reviews at truestory.fm. And, you know, your voice recorder on your phone is a perfect way to record those. And just send it to us right there. As soon as you watch the movie, hey, we just might put it on the show. We do record about a couple weeks early, so get it in as quick as you can. Uh, and again, you're sending it to reviews at truestory.fm. And if you're wondering where you can find 
the movies that we're talking about in the coming weeks so that you can get those reviews in. You can find the entire series rundown on our Letterboxd HQ page. It's over there at uh, thenextreel.com slash Letterboxd. It's actually at letterboxd.com slash the next reel and uh you can see the watch list uh coming up of all the shows that we're doing and uh while you're there if you fall in love with letterbox like we have if you want to remove those ads if you want to support a great team uh that is building this perfect bespoke social network for movie lovers just uh become a patron or a pro member and you can get a discount of 20 percent off by using that code next reel or visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd, and the code will already be applied. 20% off. It works for renewals as well, which is huge. Most of these code type things doesn't work for renewals. It's yeah, only it's first time. First use. time. Uh-huh. Yeah, Not here. That's right. Letterboxd is giving us renewals as well. So, thenextreel.com slash letterboxd. And uh, if you want to find other ways to support the show, consider becoming a member. We have, um, we're using Memberful, which, um, wait, wait, what's the whole thing with Memberful and, it's Memberful and Spotify now, right? Oh, that's big news, Andy. I'm so yeah, glad what? you remember that. So for a long time, so the background is this, for a long time, Spotify was the place where you couldn't, like, if you listen to all your podcasts in Spotify, which, come on, I mean, you shouldn't, but many people do. Um, if you listen to podcasts in Spotify... <laughs> not you Neil Young. Not Neil Young. Nope. Joni Mitchell. Do not listen to their podcasts in Spotify. If you were to try to listen to, like, you subscribe to support us, and you get this member podcast. It's a special feed we put together that you could subscribe to and listen to. Well, you couldn't do that in Spotify. But as of Hopefully last week, when I turned this on, there is a new integration between Spotify and Memberful. So if you authenticate your account in Spotify, you can then subscribe to um, the member-only version of the podcast that we produce uh, right there in your Spotify dashboard. And all you have to do is is find the, the just search for the Next Real Member uh, podcast, and then there'll be a little lock on it. And you click on that lock, and it'll ask you to enter your member full username and password to connect those two services, and then you'll be able to listen to the podcast. You can see the member podcast in Spotify just fine. You can even, I think, follow it, but you can't press play. As soon as you press play, it asks you to uh, to log in, and I'm not a Spotify podcast user, so we're still trying to get our hands on w what this actually all means. Uh, but if you try it and you have luck and you love Spotify, we'd love to hear. So let us know. Uh, but when you do sign up for membership, you get all sorts of things. We have so many bonus episodes that we're putting out. We have uh, our monthly flick chart re-ranking episode that we do, where Pete and I duke it out, and Pete always is trying to get um, Under the Cherry Moon higher, and I'm always trying to get it lower, and I'm always trying to get 2001 higher, and he's always trying to get it lower. So those are always fun. Um, and then we do our member, uh, we, at the end of each series that we do, so like by the time we get through our John Hurd series, we're going to be doing our retake episode where we look at the whole series and talk about all the films in context. And, of course, we have our monthly member bonus episode and uh, our February member bonus episode. Cactus Flower will be out by the time this is uh, out. So, I mean, you know, we just have so many bonus episodes for people. So if you want to learn more, just go to truestory.fm slash TNR membership. 
and you can see what our tiers are. The most it'll cost you is $5 per month or $55 per year. There's a couple of things that we know, like we're both seasoned podcasters. And we're both geeks. Hey, we're both dads of amazing daughters. We're both Gen X. But there is some things we don't know. Like what? Well, like what each episode of our new show is going to be about. How can we not know that? We're making the show. Yeah, but here's the thing. You're going to bring five things to talk about, and so am I. But we won't know what the other host is bringing. So it could be anything. Uh, A new story about a Marvel show. uh, A cool toy that's coming out. uh, A play we just saw even a weird thing from a drawer and it'll be a surprise for us and for our audience and what are we calling this show oh that's the part we do know it's called 10 random things you know throwing in this random element the show could go off the rails really fast oh oh, yes i i hope it does and we're also going to do it live wait what yeah that's right 10 random things will be streamed live on wednesdays at 5 p.m arizona time Awakenings. How many times have you seen this movie? Do you remember? Like, is this twice. a regular watch? This is just twice. Yeah, once once when it uh, yeah. first came out on VHS and once the other day. Okay. Okay, you and I are in exactly the same boat. Hmm. I feel like, though, this is a movie that I, I wondered why I haven't watched it, but like why I haven't seen it more. Like it feels like a movie I I might have that might have crossed my path more. I mean, it's got the big names in it. It's got the De Niro and the uh, you know Bradley Whitford <laughs> and Robin Williams. Like it and feels Peter like Stormare. Uh, <laughs> that's Who'd right. That's right. The lizards in it. Um, it, it feels like I that's why the lizard wasn't he the lizard and um, no Spider Man. No. Who was that? Why am I getting that was them confused? The British. The British guy. Mm. No, you're right. Man, I get them confused. I the whole time I'm thinking, oh, he's an unsympathetic neurochemist. <laughs> he must he must be missing an arm. And <laughs> no, I'm thinking, you know what? You know the reason I you know the reason I thought is because I just watched Minority Report and he was Stormare was in Minority Report. Yes, he uh, does the eye surgery. He's uh, the eye Reese, guy. Yeah. Reese Evans is the lizard. Yep. yep. That's right. Well done. Well done. Anyway. So yeah, it's got all the right people. Do you? What do you think of this movie? I enjoyed it actually. It was a film that I watched and I said, "Eh, it was a little slow. It was okay." And then I was just kind of mulling it over, and I'm like, "Huh, there was actually some pretty, some you know, some nice things in here. The way that it unfolded, I actually kind of liked it. I I I feel like it is one of those films that I, I can see why I've only seen it." the two times you know it's i i just don't feel like it's one that i need to return to much but i really enjoy the people in it the performances the story and the struggle and kind of the themes everything like i i really enjoyed all of that i felt like there was a lot going on in here it's just it isn't a film that i'm like i i'm like right now i'm like i just again i don't feel the need to return to it for quite a while for quite a while the the chemical window is closed you're saying the chemical windows closed. You don't need to feel those things anymore. I got my L-Dopa hit. And you got your L-Dopa. Yeah. This is the story of fake Oliver Sacks. Um, <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> uh, 
I I want to start by talking about Robin Williams because uh, Robin Williams plays Malcolm Sayer, who is the fictionalized version of Oliver Sacks. Do you think they should have just called him like Oliver Slats or Slacks? Maybe Oliver Slacks. Oliver Slacks. Why, why would he? Why would he do that? Why would he call him Oliver Slacks? It's like they're fictionalizing it, but they're not really. That's the thing. It's like why, like you know, Steven Spielbergo territory here. Why just completely Malcolm Sayer? But yeah. no, no, it's you're really right. Oliver Sacks. A hundred percent. No, I don't know why they fictionalize this because they make it such a big deal that this is based on the book, right? Uh, and when when Oliver Sacks talks about the movie, he says, yeah, they got it generally all right. Like it's over sentimentalized in some parts. It's, um, you know, s- simplified in, in other parts. But generally, they did it all right. And uh, Robert De Niro, as as Leonard Lowe, um, really found his way into this sort of Parkinsonian experience and communicated that well. So, like, it feels like why would they try to to make this a, a fictionalized version of the truth when, you know, just calling him Oliver Sacks, letting Robin Williams play Oliver Sacks um, would have been okay. I do think, I this is what I want to say about Robin Williams. I uh, adore his performance in this movie. Um, I adore it because I think he adequately captures the introvert's dilemma, right? That he needs a job. He is a... Um, uh, a fascinating, uh, or he's a he's a researcher and he's fascinated in the brain and he's <laughs> he had this task of like getting this chemical out of four tons of worms that that I thought was awesome, and <laughs> I I think that his experience moving into this hospital, moving through the hospital and sort of awakening himself to what it means to work with other human beings, I thought was exceptionally special in this movie. I was so connected with Robin Williams throughout. I thought he was fantastic. The The challenge I have with this movie is that had you asked me before I started watching it, who was in the movie with Robin Williams, I would not have been able to tell you. I did not remember until I pressed play that Robert De Niro was in it. Is that wow. crazy? That is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't know why. Maybe that speaks to his performance that he is I mean, I think between the two, Robert De Niro is more an actor who disappears in parts and sometimes yes. you almost don't recognize that he's in something because he can disappear so much. And I, I I mean, I think Robin Williams can be in that camp, but he there's an element of him that always seems a little more movie star-ish where I can see Robin Williams even when he's being incredible. Um, you know, and so maybe there's a little element of that to to your point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and OK, to that point specifically, like how easy is it to take Robin Williams here as Dr. Malcolm Sayer and see him as a um, as the same doctor in Goodwill Hunting? Right. Like, oh, I've decided to take all my neuroscience background and become a psychologist or psychiatrist. And now I work at a school because my wife died. And and here's my backstory. I also was the awakenings guy like that could that could exist. It wasn't much of a reach. And I I think Robert De Niro. um, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think Robert De Niro had, I mean, a really. uh, Significant challenge ahead to play this part and and get over the 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 risk of lampooning Parkinson's patients who live with this, right? And the people who love and care for Parkinson's patients, um, you know, who live with this and and making his physical 
the appearance of his physical challenges um, clear and authentic and honest um, in, in a way that represents that experience. And I, I think he did. I, 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 there wasn't anything in here that, that felt like, um, he wasn't up to that experience. I mean, I don't know you. It's, it's very tricky. Cause you know, after my review kind of posted in, in our discord community, um, Brian asked, what did you, who did you think gave the better performance? And I was like, and I'm like, well, you'll have to wait. And I'm still like, I, maybe I said that because I don't really know because uh, I really found both of them incredible in the the power of their performances, but they're so different, and that's the thing that I think I I find really fascinating is is Robin Williams is so reserved and quiet and afraid to be touched and and holds himself back from people and from um, connections. Mm -hmm. And there's this element of him that is, uh, that I just, I really found powerful and De Niro, like the way that he got into his performance as this, this character who, you know, wakes up after 30 years from suffering with encephalitis lethargica, this kind of a sleeping sickness that, uh, Sachs kind of figured out, I, it was very interesting how he how he plays that at just being excited to be alive and then being shocked to realize that he's 30 years older. Like he he fell asleep basically when he was 20. It's not like it just happened. I mean, we see him as a younger kid. So we know over about a 10 ish year period, he is slowly getting worse and worse until finally he just falls into it. But still, waking up 30 years later and not realizing that time's passed, and all of a sudden you're looking in the mirror at like a 50-year-old a version of yourself. I mean, it's a it's shock. And the way he plays that is great. The way he falls for Penelope and Miller's character is great. The way he starts realizing how he's not going to be able to go anywhere and becomes very upset about that. Like, the way his character arc evolved over the course of the film, I just – I was incredibly fascinated by and, and to that end, I suppose I would pick De Niro over the two, um, because I think what happens with Williams's character is once he figures stuff out, he kind of just becomes excited doctor solving stuff until kind of later in the film when when we kind of close the loop with his character and 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 everything. But there's a big chunk of the film where it's just he's the doctor who's excited to be solving stuff. And it's, you know, to that end, it's, I, I feel like I lose a little bit of that kind of that shy, introverted character. And now he's just this excited doctor. And, and it's it's not as it, it the, there's not as full a journey for him as there is for De Niro, I suppose, over the course of the entire story. Yeah, that's that's an interesting perspective. Yeah. It's a tough call, though. There, I, I, It's a powerhouse, and you can see why at various award, uh, which we'll talk about later, but like at, at the various awards, sometimes it was De Niro who was getting recognized. Sometimes it was Williams who was getting recognized. Sometimes neither of them, because I think they were canceling each other out so often. Um, so it was interesting. It was very interesting seeing these two uh, coming up against each other. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, it's a really hard question for me too, um, because for many of the same reasons, I am inclined to say Williams, but I don't I don't know that that is my because it, it is so much a better performance, but it is so much the performance that I personally can connect to, and I, I connect to it so so well that it's it's hard to to not mistake that a little bit for, you know, some sort of judgment of performance. And 
uh, I do lose a little bit, and and I, you know, I the the nature of the truth of the story being what it is, right? I I struggled with the uh, the the sort of unionizing efforts of the patients, <laughs> that whole sequence. Yeah, I really struggled with that. Like I that to me. I, I don't know what the real story is. I, and so I can't judge that, right? But I this didn't feel real to me. Yeah. There was, uh, as Oliver Sacks said, who was, as you said, he was generally pleased with the film and the way that it, it portrayed the, the, the characters and the illness and everything. He was generally pleased with it. And even Robin Williams' portrayal of a Sacks-ish character, he enjoyed that. And he, he thought De Niro he said, had an incredible empathy and a mastery of detail. At times, I would totally get taken in and forget he was an actor. So I think coming from the doctor who worked with these people, like, and he said, like, De Niro studied all of the footage of these awakenings. So, I mean, he really was in there. Yeah. But he said he was unhappy that De Niro's character became violent. He said his main reservation is the violence on Ward 5. Uh, quote, I got very angry about it. In fact, I walked off the set. So... I think that speaks to your point that it's not necessarily like this was a dramatization by Stephen Zalian who adapted the novel. Also, there was the romance. He said there was never a romance with this nurse uh, between himself and uh, Julie Kavner's character. Um, so, uh, but he he got he understood that you know he said what is Hollywood without a little love and violence? Um, so I, I think he kind of gets it, but it I don't think he was as bothered by the fictionalized relationship as he was by fictionalizing something that involved the medical situation that he had been studying. Yeah, I, I that's fascinating to me that that uh, because uh, like I so keyed in on that part when <laughs> when De Niro when De Niro has like his thugs in the ward and this turns into the Godfather. I I was like, I can't I just don't even know what to do with this. How did the movie turn so hard right here? Yeah. It just turned so hard and I didn't care for it. And th- and that that sequence is is the the major detractor for me in this movie is is the damage that it does to the hospital that I just found unbelievable. Now, that is um, not to say that I didn't recognize what they were doing with the frustration of these people. Right. When you uh, I mean, this was when you take all these people and you have them trying to communicate the frustration that they have still being locked in this ward after they become lucid, uh, I, I really resonated with that. I thought that was really powerful. And and to turn it into this kind of a, um, you know, the violence was, uh, I, I just thought it was a bridge too far. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like violence like they were... Yeah, there were like riots. Like know, it I'm wasn't a prison to... riot. Yeah, it wasn't, right. No, right. It wasn't like that. But I, I still understand your point, and I share your frustration in the way that it ended up um, kind of getting depicted because it just felt like one of those things where I'm like, this feels a little more scripted, like we need to get some more drama in here, um, I, which is frustrating because I really appreciated that element of De Niro's character about this this person who just wants to go take a walk by himself and his mental capacities are there. Why can't he? But the doctors, the medical staff all know we haven't we've just started experimenting with this like we don't know like how long this will last we just don't know enough and so i can see why they are so wary about it but i can also from his point of view i have been locked up in this prison for 30 years yeah. without realizing it i just want to live again 
you know and that's there's that incredible frustration there that i do feel comes across with de niro's character it's just the way that zalian crafted that it does feel more scripted than real there were some other uh, elements you know when you talk about the the other side of this right they're they're trapped in the ward is is the one side of frustration the other side is they they explore going outside uh with sayer and the nursing staff um and there were there were little scenes that just felt like this is kind of inconsistent uh, approach uh, and i i didn't i i don't think it affected me it didn't affect me as much as the as the um you know the <laughs> mob scene uh, the in the ward but going to the dance club and the the way in which these characters were allowed to to be themselves uh and to be independent getting on and off the bus at one scene uh, one section um leonard is uh they're all getting on the bus and leonard says to sayer he says uh, i'm just gonna you know, he walks his watches his mom walk off to get on the bus he says i'm just gonna stay here because he wants to go back in and and talk to penelope and miller right to paula but uh the sayer just says oh are you sure okay and here they are outside the premises of the hospital, and he just <laughs> lets him walk back in as Sayer gets on the bus and they drive off. And that just felt like because they are so attentive in other scenes about not letting him walk out unattended, it just felt weird that they have these little moments of independence that are inconsistent from their treatment once they're in the building. Did that strike you at all? Oh, instantly the same reaction i said but they're so slack and i mean part of me says well it's 1969 medical care like i can see them being a little more slack you know they're smoking in the offices when they're delivering babies all this sort of stuff like we know how doctors worked back then um but i i felt the same thing i'm like they were just like outside the place like there was hardly any um staff out there to kind of keep tabs on all of these dozens of people as they're getting on the bus. You know, he's just trusted to walk himself back in. I'm like, eh, but uh, yeah, so I, I felt the exact same thing. A uh, little, um, uh, just another of those moments. I mean, anytime you have these sorts of things where like, let's get them all on a bus and go tour stuff. Yeah. Like, it just ends up feeling like, especially in this risky. Well, it just, but it feels fake. It feels scripted to me. Like, and it feels like something that comes from like uh you know one flew over the cuckoo's nest like taking everybody out and now granted that was um not with medical staff mm -hmm. but still like the point is like it, it feels like a scripted scene that they have to get in so that you can start seeing who these people really are i don't mind it i had fun with the scene you know i think that it, it plays nicely and and you do get kind of a broader spectrum of like the types of personalities that have been locked away for all these different years um but yeah it, it does strike me that they they there are they just needed a few more extras dressed in nursing outfits just so that i bought into it a little more you know right Right. I, uh, you know, that is not to say that, you know, some of the other elements of, of uh, particularly De Niro's performance, I think that we get into this sec section where uh, De Niro and Sayer are in full investigation mode after, you know, De Niro, uh, Leonard has, has 
he gets out of bed and he starts to degrade and he starts to have his seizures again. And the commitment that the two of these characters are given to to demonstrate the the lengths to which Leonard wants to, um, you know, commit to learning what is going on in his body and brain, I thought were really great. Like the the whole, you know, get the camera, get the camera, get the camera scene as he's having his seizure, uh, I thought was chillingly powerful. I, those kinds of things in this movie were real highlights. It's it's the the stuff of of Sayer and Leonard together doing the the shoe leather work of trying to uncover what's going on in the brain. I thought were great. It's the socialization stuff where things start to fall apart for me. Well, it's I don't mind the socialization stuff when it's in the hospital like that stuff. Yeah, I yeah, buy no, more. that's like true. when they're when they're uh, doing the different things there and and kind of like when everyone first wakes up and stuff like that. Like I buy that. It's just when we're going out, I really start kind of you know I I, I start going oh yeah this is just a movie adaptation of this as opposed to a, more of an exploration of the real thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can I can get that. I do love the hysterical woman in who freaks out whenever pens come out that was one of my favorite bits she starts screaming yeah, well, wahida ahmad wahida yeah yeah Fantastic. you know i was wondering because uh robin williams said that they used some real patience in the making of the film and it made me wonder because you know he calls her wahida mm-hmm. and her, she's credited as wahida i'm like i wonder if she was one A of patient. the real patients or yeah or what? But uh, I believe but it seems this like the a, only credit she has. It seems like a big ask to have somebody, um, like to expose somebody who has an issue like this. Yeah. Though you know, like super I was like, vulnerable. I oh. can't imagine that they actually would have done that. So I, I don't know. I questioned that a little bit. Um, but who knows? Maybe she is. I don't know. But I, I am curious if they, I, I, you know, as they're walking through the halls with some other people, I can, I can go. Okay, I can see that they probably did uh, use some real people just to be extras that you're passing by. But like, I was like, I, I was like, I can't imagine that with Wahida that they did that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, and and it makes me wonder, like, who who else in the cast would we have to to consider that? who was a real patient because the rest of them, uh, Alice Drummond, uh, Judith Molina, Barton Heyman, uh, George Martin. Yeah. Like those people, you just like, they're all, I mean, the other people I recognize. Yeah, too. sure. It's like, yeah, it's like once you start seeing, Oh, okay. Yeah. I recognize Alice Drummond. Like you said, mm-hmm. like she's a face that I knew and I see her. We get into these like Shane Fistel is man in hall. And Wahida Ahmad, hysterical woman. Like, yeah. uh, I, uh, Linda Burns is fish sticks. Uh, I, I wonder, you know, where at that, what point, yeah, yeah, yeah. At what point does the cast list cross over to patient list? I would imagine it's people who were just there in the passing and stuff. But I, it's hard to say. Yeah, well, because it's, it's funny. You get that further down on the cast list and you see people like... Byron Utley and Vincent Pastor, who are ward patient number five and ward or number two and ward five patient number six, but they also have headshots. So it makes me think. Well, Vincent Pastor <laughs> is a I mean, you can, I mean, he's very recognizable, but I think this is one of his earliest things before he 
um, became more known on stuff like uh, um, oh gosh, yeah, no, Sopranos, um, Sopranos, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, interesting, interesting, interesting. Okay, and apparently, just apparently, Vin Diesel is also in an uncredited hospital orderly in here. Wow, I didn't see him, but I didn't see him either. I, but he's credited as such, so that's interesting. Interesting. Now I have to watch it a third time. <laughs> I gotta see the family, man. The family. Um, let's talk about speaking of the family, Andy. Let's talk about the Lowe's. What'd you think of the mom and son relationship? I particularly think this is interesting because we have to look at the mom and son relationship across uh, essentially a generation. So, what'd you think of mom? I thought she was fine. And again, this is um, Ruth Nelson. Ruth Nelson, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think she does a, a great job as the frustrated mom and and her speech that she gives to um, to the doctors at the end about, you know, he's had enough. I really bought into it. It felt scripted, but that was a moment where I'm like, I buy it like that came across very honestly and um you know as a passionate plea for you know my son is done you need to stop this and just let him go back to the way he was because he's getting lost in this stuff mm -hmm. i really enjoyed that i i thought she did a great job of playing that character and uh had some had some great moments whether it was seeing him or being with him when he's sleeping um, there when he's waking up, you know, through the story, like I really enjoyed that. And as that mom who now her son is back and she doesn't want to let him go, even though as he realizes he's 50 years old and he kind of wants some time to himself, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, I, I thought it was, I thought it was great. There are pieces of, uh, of the, her interaction with, uh, Sayre that, I started feeling like I started being able to see the script, right? We started talking about that the other day. You know, what does it mean when you see the script? And it just felt like, um, it, it, I don't know if I if I put that on Penny Marshall, not being able to direct through a complicated emotional scene, um, or her not quite figuring out what she's trying to say. But I just felt like this was uh, their interaction, particularly the scene talking about uh, her and her fear for him, you know, uh, not being, uh, was not being cared for, not being, not being able to go outside. I don't remember what her, her, the nut of that scene was, but I just remember thinking that's not, uh, that, that didn't feel authentic to me. Mm, okay. I like her very much. And, uh, but I, um, it, she just, she felt like so much more of a utility tool to just kind of move the emotional needle. And uh, after he was awake, um, even though, man, they're, when they were reunited for the first time, when Sayer comes in and says, there's someone who wants to see you and it's mom for the first time, that was, that was weighty, a weighty reunion. I mean, low hanging fruit emotionally on screen, of course, but I was moved. Well, what's interesting about that is for him, again, he doesn't realize it's been 30 years. Yeah. He's like, oh, I, hey, I, I, I got sick, but now I'm well. And it's like the other, the next day or, you know, maybe a week or something right. for her. It's like, this is like, she hasn't seen him as a person in all this time. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it's like, here you are. And so it's, it's really interesting like that. And that's what's something that I think is, 
is fascinating about the way the story plays with that kind of those time differences. Did you did you get a sense of because they make a big deal in the movie, uh, you know, about the the silence and sort of the the somber experience of him looking in the mirror the first time when he sees himself. Yeah. Right. That he notices it's been 30 years. But did you get like he sees his mom before he sees himself in the mirror? And I never got the feeling that he looked at her and was like, oh, you're old, right? You know, that's a good point. And, and that honestly should have clued him in a little bit. Yeah. That like, uh, like, what the heck is happening? You know, who are you? Oh, wait, you're my mom. What? Yeah. There's a really interesting point that that doesn't get um, like that should have been the moment that he realized something was weird about this situation i think so and i can also see how complicated that would have been to portray like how do you how do you get to the other side of that particular moment when you just need when you need the emotional moment of the reunion to be the thing that you're feeling right now but to watch de niro portray both reuniting with mom after being sick to reuniting or with himself after 30 years i I think that that might have been just a bridge you know, too far, but well, but again, that's where it feels scripted, right? Like that's yeah. where I think yeah. there could have been something in there with the way that Zalian portrayed that, and we never see Mom ever when he's young. We hear her, we hear her, yeah. Um, but she's always just a voice talking to his friends, or where were you, or things like that. Um, and so we only see her as the old woman, and so we would have to have seen her as a young woman as kind of a more prominent character in his youth so that when she's old, we are also seeing her old and also like who, what? And and that could have made that work better, but you're right. It's, it's, it's more scripted as a way for him to not, it's more about the reunion in that moment. And it's less about him realizing how much time has passed. And, and perhaps that is a flaw with the way that Zalian crafted these moments. Yeah. Right. 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 That's an interesting point. Very interesting point. She uh, sadly uh, um, passed away shortly after this film. She did, I think, one more TV movie after this and uh, passed away in 1992 at the age of 87. She wasn't, I mean, she had 25 credits uh, in her IMDb. Is there anything else on there that you have seen and remember her in? Um, Three Women. That was mine is the only other thing that I have seen of hers. Not a lot. She didn't do a lot of stuff. But she has a face I absolutely recognize. So it's Mm -hmm. interesting. It must mostly be from this movie, I guess. Yeah, Yeah. Um, that's what I was thinking, too. Uh, Okay. Um, And, of course, we do have Penelope Ann Miller, who is uh, in this movie. We actually have two uh, of uh, romances. And... The one, I think the more significant one is uh, Eleanor Costello, Nurse Eleanor, played by fantastic Julie Kavner. Um, uh, You know, who it's so weird to see her uh, and hear her speak after so many years of hearing her, only hearing her on The Simpsons. Because, I mean, she's got 729 episodes of The Simpsons under her belt. which is carries a lot of weight in her 72 overall credits. She's she's very busy with that. And only 23 movie credits. Yeah. Um, Everything else is voice. Yeah. And it's it's funny because I don't know uh, for her films. It's like, uh, gosh, what have I seen? I I guess it's, you know, she ended up in a lot of Woody Allen uh, films like Hannah and Her Sisters, uh, Radio Days, New York Stories. 
um, Alice, Shadows and Fog, I'll Do Anything, Deconstructing Harry. Um, but that was kind of it, you know, as far as her Woody Allen stuff. And then it's stuff like, um, you know, she pops up in Bad Medicine, which I vaguely remember from the 80s, and Movie Madness, one of those fun, crazy movies. Forget and, Paris, a Billy Crystal uh, for, You're right, Forget yeah. Paris. Uh, and then some voice, other voice stuff, like Dr. Doolittle, she, uh, the, the uh, original... <laughs> The first one that Eddie Murphy did back in 98 um, and A Walk on the Moon. She was um, uh, just a voice of a PA announcer for that film. So, yeah, she's she's not in her like her face isn't in a lot of stuff. And so it's interesting to see her kind of popping up. And I like her. And it's one of those things where I'm like, why doesn't she do more? I mean, she's great with her voice stuff. And I hey, if I if I was doing as many characters as uh, or as many um episodes of a show like the simpsons you know maybe i wouldn't have to worry about much either but still she is somebody that i do enjoy seeing on screen me too me too i really enjoyed her and then and so she was the love interest for uh you know for dr sayer and then we have uh penelope ann miller i mentioned for um you know who is is there to see her father and read to her father uh and meets uh de niro or i should say de niro meets her yeah. And that one feels more shoehorned in. Yep. Like it feels like, you know, he's he's 50. He hasn't had a romance. We need to introduce something. She's going to have to be somebody who's coming to the hospital, who's not a patient. So let's make her a patient's daughter. I can see how all of that works. You know, it's it's fine. Uh, and, you know, Penelope Ann Miller is one of those people that I've always enjoyed on screen, even though she's rarely in stuff that stands out. Um but, uh, but you know, I, I think she's fine in this movie. This was definitely a period of uh, when she was more busy, I think, from like the late 80s to the mid 90s, late 90s. You know, she had about a 10 year period where she seemed to be in a lot more stuff, more popular. But it's just I, I don't think of her part here as like a um, she's not a critical part of it. Her character is a kind of a change agent for his character. But like it's sadly one of those characters that probably could have been many other people. Yes. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I, I felt like you, you say shoehorned and, uh, that's, that nails it for me completely. She's, uh, uh, it, it, it felt like the, the Hollywood treatment. Uh, and I, I wonder what Oliver Sacks would say about that relationship. Well, I mean, he came out in what, like 2015 or so. Um, like a few years before he died. So obviously, I mean, as he said, he's like, hey, Hollywood loves their romances. Yep, Hollywood I, loves I their romances. Yeah, yeah. I don't think, uh, you know, he was that bothered or that thrilled. He probably was just one of those things. Like, I'm glad they're not calling it Dr. Sachs. Yeah, right, right. Um, and old Spectre von Sydow is also in this movie. Uh, Max von Sydow <laughs> is, is, uh, is sadly passed away in 2020 um it was it was fun i he has a small part in this movie i had forgotten that he was in it and uh but since i forgot that de niro was in it that doesn't say much <laughs> yeah right exactly he's one of those people though that like he, like he's big enough name so he's credited at the top but then you're like oh well did, is he not ever coming back because does he have yeah he has all Max of like Bonsai. two minutes of screen time <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just very little. Uh, you know, it's a it's an interesting little part. It's like that's what I mean. It's fun seeing bit parts like that for people like Max von Sydow. Um, also, Peter Stormare, who you know has gone on to do much more, as opposed to uh, you know some 
other bit players, but it's fun kind of seeing Peter Stormare become more. Max von Sydow obviously is great. Mike thought when I watched him, was like, God, is this, has he always been this old? Because I'm like, is he ever young? He never seems like he was a young man. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, he was... <laughs> Has he ever been a young man? Well, he was in that movie that you love so much that I uh, that I can't watch. <laughs> Which one's that? <laughs> that wasn't. Uh, never mind. I can't remember. <laughs> I need to look for it. What was it that we that it was? Uh, oh, that one. No, nope, no, nope, not that one. Are you going back to like the Seventh Seal or something like that? Like one of the Bergman films? I'm going back to uh, the Emigrants. Oh, sure. Yes. Yes. But, you know, was he really? Actually, now that I think of that, that was 1971. And he, I think he looked old then, too. Well, he looked, I, I guess you're going back into those films to find him as a younger-ish man. You know, like the the um, the films that he did with Bergman and stuff. Yeah. Um, but even Seventh Seal, he looked old. He He comes across as a character. Maybe he's just a wizened soul. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's it. Yeah. yeah. And I think... People with longer faces tend to look more mature earlier. And he is a he is a long faced individual. Might be the longest faced. <laughs> it could be the longest of faces. God, I love Sidow. He's great. He's so good. Uh, OK. And the uh, just a, a quick brief on the sleepers, the cocoon element of this movie. Uh, I, again, I mean, it's, it's funny because you start seeing like as um, Dr. Sayers walking around and and kind of seeing the patients, I, I don't know. For me, it's like, oh, I recognize that person. Guarantee she's going to wake up. Oh, I recognize that person. Guarantee he's going to wake up. <laughs> like, you, you, you can tell. And again, it's just this is the curse of watching a lot of movies. You know which ones are going to be the ones that, that aren't just you know, pretty much comatose for the film because they're the ones that you can you've seen before and yeah. it's like well of course they're going to not just do this was there anybody in there that stood out to you that you particularly loved seeing wake up i thought ann mira was fantastic alice drummond got kind of a hero moment i i just love her face she's got a great grandma face she's i think the is was she the librarian she is yeah i'm looking now she's the librarian in ghostbusters in yeah. ghostbusters yeah um and she just, but she has that little lady face that is just so perfect. And I really enjoy her uh, look and the moments with her in this, I really bought into like those moments of her, like she had, like, that's when he really starts figuring things out. Like she's wanting to get to the window to look out, but she, her brain won't walk past the floor here because the pattern stops and things like that. Like as he's piecing, the, like I love the puzzle pieces and her character is one that got a lot of those puzzle pieces. And so I think to that end, you know, probably why I enjoy her more than many of the others, because she was given kind of those little moments. Yeah. I liked, uh, I, I liked Ann Mira's uh, moment when she says that your husband filed for divorce and she says, Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> That was such a, a a sweet, weird moment for her. I think she's very, very funny, and she's been she's she's one of those people that I I know from other things that that she's been in. She, um, you know, lots and lots and lots of credits for her. Yeah, and we should point out that one of them that wakes up is um, uh, is a Dexter Jordan, the uh, jazz musician, um, and he's the one who doesn't ever really speak but you know right obviously can play the piano well 
Rolando. <laughs> yeah. And that was that was a neat moment, too. And you realize, oh, right. Yeah, he is a musician. And uh, I because I, I wondered often, like it's much of the piano stuff. It, it felt like it was dubbed in. But knowing who he is, I have to imagine he I mean, he was more of a saxophonist. So I, I guess who knows if he actually played the piano well enough to cover this thing. But I. Yeah, know, right. I, I don't really know. Uh, but I mean, but he also great. was nominated for a uh, Best Actor Oscar back in 86, a few years before this, for the film Round Midnight, which is one I still have yet to see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this re- this was actually released uh, right after he passed away. He passed away April 25th, 1990. This was released in December. So didn't get to see the finished product. Bummer. Yeah. Um, uh, we, we talked about John Hurd. I mean, it's not a big John Hurd role for him but as you said earlier he does play this sort of like villainous sort of character well i mean he's not a villain he's just you know he's the one who you know has to not buy into stuff and and has to be convinced over and over like you know the money scene getting people to let go of their money and like everybody's giving them their checks and it's just like Oh yeah, that was well, another very so scripted of those. moment. But there, there really are, and there's there are a number of those. He's like the voice of all of the thug doctors, right? That the they make the doctors this gang of non-believers and idiots, and that's unfortunate. But if you don't make the doctors through John Hurd the idiots, then the scene where all of the the donors pull out their checkbooks after the slide presentation has much less meaning to it right yeah, like sure. you have Absolutely. to to make him the antagonist in order for us to feel strongly about about that um and so you know i think it's fine um it, it is once again like it's a bit part in a movie that is largely worth talking about for different reasons <laughs> so it, it um you know it's it's john hurd he's fine but and he does a good job in this sort of role and this is why he would play this sort of character a lot in these bit parts because yeah he carries that weight and authority and uh, is the sort of character who you can easily play off of to kind of get this stuff across and so i mean he works it, it works well for the context of the story and um yeah i mean you know we're doing a whole series about him. It's you know, yeah. It's because he does not, this stuff good. It's because he does good. he does this stuff good. John he does Hurt. it good. You know? <laughs> he does it good. This <laughs> hey, stuff <Johnny> good. <laughs> yeah. Now this is different for Pen, uh, Penny Marshall, though. I mean, you know, I mentioned it does is it does it feel like she's like pushing to get her Oscar here? Is this that is this that you know? I, I generally hate the whole Oscar bait uh, mentality, but. I mean, there is something to that concept, you know, is this a chance for Penny to do something serious, quote unquote, and try to make something that's a little more important than saying something that she wasn't doing with her previous two films? Well, it sure feels like that to me, Um, you know, like not notwithstanding the fact that her previous films were, I thought, you know, awesome. I'm going to just take note that you said previous films. No, I, I meant film awesome uh, because together. the problem so, is no, no, no. You no, said it. No, it's the there. problem it's is that there. I had forgotten that A League of Their Own came out after this one, right? <laughs> like that was was that ninety <laughs> one? Yes. I can't remember ninety one, ninety two, ninety three. Okay, or so two or three. Yeah, I had it in my head that that was first, and this was third. And <laughs> I'm sorry that I said that aloud because I take it back. Because <laughs> now I've got it on record. Because you have me. Yeah. Unfortunately, saying that when I do my review of Jumpin' Jack Flash, Pete Wright says, (laughs) "Dang it!" (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I think this is Oscar play for her. This is like, hey, everybody, look what I can do. Um, I, I was the Laverne, Laverne and Shirley person, and look, I can do serious stuff too. And uh, yeah, it was a hunt. It was a hunt for the Oscar. This movie, it felt like it to me. I don't know that that makes it bad. No, I, I don't think so. And I, again, I don't necessarily think that people take stuff just to say, oh, this is going to be my Oscar. I think they're going to say, you know, I want to do something a little more serious. And, you know, I can see her doing that because she has had so much comedy in her life and working with someone like Robert, De Robert oh, sorry, with Robin Williams, who is such a funny person and who had already started showing like Dead Poets Society, he could do stuff that's a little more serious, but to really kind of a much more intricate portrayal of a character, like she's clearly, she knows how to work with actors and get these performances from them and is doing a great job, I think. Um, and, and I think it's a really interesting story. We didn't really talk about this, but there's a scene uh, in the film that's, you know, it, it's become iconic because the poster made it iconic because you have Robert De Niro. He's, you know, when he finally is getting out a little bit and Robin Williams takes him out and they go out to the beach and he walks out into the water and climbs up onto this rock that's in the water. And you have that fantastic image of him standing on this rock in the water. It's kind of a Jesus <laughs> moment, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. the way that it's portrayed. And Robin Williams is afraid to join him. He doesn't want to. But I think that's some an important element, and this is something that really clicked for me with the film. And I can see, especially with someone like Penny Marshall, really kind of latching onto this idea of, you know, it's about these small things. And and it's, you know, yeah, you you're gone for 30 years and and you know, remember remembering to enjoy the little things, I think, becomes such a such an important element to living. And we talked about this last week when we were talking about big two, about like the idea of latching on to these small things and, and and realizing that there's that you can really enjoy this stuff you don't just have to like let it all kind of go past you but there's there's so much to to get out of just those moments and and that's something that i really started gravitating to with the 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 theme of the story here and i i think that it's absolutely something that penny marshall probably was drawn to as well I think so too. I it, is it interesting that um that this could have been a Spielberg film that he and he was the one who passed it on to Penny Marshall? Yeah, I think that is interesting. Tell me more. I think it is interesting. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I just think it is interesting and that um because it it honestly it feels to me like it it's very very close to a Steven Spielberg thumbprint. You know, like like that he maybe he worked on the film, uh, just the sort of ideation on the film just enough to to leave that Spielberg mark uh, and she inherited it and delivered it. Right. Like it. this this is so close to what could have been like it doesn't because it doesn't feel like anything else that she's done to me. Like I would not be able to I could tell you big and I could tell you, um, you know, a league of their own. They feel to me like of a piece of Penny Marshall. This one doesn't. It does not feel like a, a Penny Marshall film uh, noted that she is trying to do something different. It feels like that. So I get that. But it it, it just feels closer to Spielberg than it does to her on this project. Uh, well, I suppose I can see that. I mean, at this point, I don't think Spielberg really was coming into, I mean, obviously he had already done Color Purple, mm -hmm. but really, uh, you know, it was, uh, it, it feels like the later 
project. Like he, he's just about to get into these sorts of things that he does, right? Like, yeah, right, right. Um, a couple years later, he'll do Schindler's List, and um, with, actually with Steven Zalian. Um, well, so and that's obviously- what, so. This is the IMDb, uh, you know, on the IMDb trivia page. That's where I'm getting this particular part. That the time he spent on the project yielded a useful outcome for him. Steve Zalian's script took several short chapters. Uh, assuming from the book, each about different patients and put them together in a linear whole. This brought Zalian to Spielberg's attention, and he offered Zalian the similar task of adapting Schindler's List hmm. and ended up winning the Oscars for both of them. Interesting. That is interesting. Also, Schindler's List feels like a Spielberg movie. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. Funny how that you're, works. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. So I, I mentioned Vin Diesel in the movie. Apparently, if you find him, mm-hmm. he has hair. So that's something to look for uh, when you're looking for the young Vin Diesel. It's it, it's one, just picture hair on him, and then you might find him in the, the film. I still Vin, don't know where he is. Vin Diesel never had hair. What are you talking about? Uh, he was right. born without it, and he is without it today. I'm looking online. People who think they have found him, like, I'm like, I don't think that's him. Like, I, I really don't think that that's uh, Vin Diesel, but um, maybe. Hmm. I don't know. Anyway, he's an orderly. Also, interestingly, Robert De Niro wanted Shelley Winters to play his mother, and she's you know a fantastic actress. We've talked about her a number of times. <laughs> she's awesome. The studio said that she has to read for the part, uh, and she refused to do so. And when she met the casting director, apparently she reportedly put both her Oscars on his desk and said, some people think I can act. <laughs> Still didn't get her the part, but... <laughs> nope. Nope. <laughs> oh, my. Um, also, interestingly, uh, we didn't talk about there was a documentary about this, but there was an actual patient that was still alive who had worked with Sachs back in this period. And uh, she was in the film, and, and uh, I guess De Niro actually films a scene with her. Um, her name was Lillian T., the only actual surviving patient at the time the film was made. So that's interesting. And that the the have you seen the documentary? I think it was it was also called Awakenings, right? Wasn't it? Uh, yeah, in 1974, uh, something made in the UK. Yeah, I have not. Um, but I, like I didn't even realize it. But and and actually, um, well, let's talk more about all of the uh, the other uh, adaptations and whatnot um, in a minute. Right now, here's our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Mike Kieran. Oriel Novella and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Yeah, so there are, there are some sequels and remakes. Is there a sequel called Back to Bed? Well, no, no sequels or remakes, uh, but there were other uh, adaptations created from the book, which, again, came out in 1973. We were just talking about the 1974 documentary uh, made by um, uh, somebody in the UK. Uh, there was a, a uh, Harold Pinter play uh, that was, it was part of a, 
a trilogy of his plays. The play, this one was called A Kind of Alaska from 1982. There was um, a 2010 ballet called Awakenings that was adapted from this and a 2020 opera uh, that was also called Awakenings. And uh, that was one that did end up actually having a delay for its opening due to COVID. Um, I'm not sure if it actually has opened. It doesn't say. It just was supposed to open 2020, and it was delayed due to the pandemic. I don't know if it ever ended mm. up opening. But it's interesting. A story like this, there's something about it that I, when it says ballet and opera, I'm like, oh, yeah, weirdly, that makes sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see it, too. Yeah. Yep. Kind of interesting. Yeah. How about uh, uh, how about the the wins, the uh, award season, Andy? This one uh it it did fair? It did fair. It wasn't huge, but you know, I think it did um in context of what they were wanting it to do, it it certainly did get Oscar notice. Um it had 3 Oscar nominations for best picture, but it lost to Dances with Wolves and I call it and as I call it the 3 Gs, Goodfellas, Godfather Part 3, and Ghost. Goodfellas, Godfather, and Ghost. Yeah, yeah. It's because there were more Gs this year, too. But uh, Dances with Wolves is what won. It also was nominated for Best Actor. Uh, This one, Robert De Niro is the one who got the notice. This was, I I don't know if it was an upset that uh, De Niro is the only person who got it, but uh, because I know both him and Williams went in hot, but it ended up uh, Jeremy Irons taking it for Reversal of Fortune. And, you know, he's pretty fantastic in that movie. Mm -hmm. Gerard Depardieu was nominated for Cyrano de Bergerac, Kevin Costner for Dances with Wolves, and Richard Harris for The Field. So it was a a broad um, kind of spectrum, but no room for Robin Williams, apparently. And then Steven Zalian was nominated for Best um, Adapted Screenplay, but lost to Dances with Wolves. Um, also losers, Goodfellas, Reversal of Fortune. And here's the other G that I was thinking of, The Grifters, which um, I love. Uh, that, that's one that I would probably have put that up for Best Picture instead of Ghost. Um, but, you know, it's it's another G. You could have had more Gs as far as I'm concerned. Is that, uh, that's not the third G? No, the Ghost was the third G. This was, oh, Ghost this, was the third G, right. Yeah, so yeah. it's the fourth the, G. Yeah. It's the fourth G. would have been a fourth G if it had been nominated for Best yeah. Picture. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. At the National Board of Review, uh, Robert De Niro and Robin Williams both won for Best Actor, and it also won as one of its, uh, what they have, the top 10 films list. And so, uh, you know, it did it did okay for itself. Six wins, 11 other nominations. All right. That's fair. Not too bad. Not too bad. Okay. How'd it do at the box office? Well, for Marshall's follow-up to her big hit, huh? Huh? I go for the easy jokes. What can I say? You sure do. Uh, her big hit a few years prior, she got an even larger budget to play with, $29 million to be exact, which is $56.8 million in today's dollars. The movie had an expected awards release strategy hitting the New York and L.A. markets December 20th, 1990, opposite Almost an Angel, Mel Gibson's Hamlet, and The Russia House. And then it had a wider release in January, interestingly coming in number two at the box office behind another John Hurd vehicle, Home Alone, in its ninth week. This went on to earn $52.1 million at the box office, or $102.1 million in today's dollars. That gives the film an adjusted profit per finished minute of 374000 a respectable amount for a big awards movie. Yeah, I'll take it. That's, yeah. uh, I, I, 
uh, would that our podcast made that app from? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so in terms of, of closure, I'm glad we talked about this movie. I had fond memories of it already and, uh, you know, but not fond enough to make me want to go back and keep watching it. So I was surprised to watch it. I, I still enjoyed it. There were things that were problematic to me, not necessarily because of like we talked about the fictionalization. Like I'm 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 generally OK with that. But it's when the the stuff that was more fictionalized read so clearly to me as fiction. It just wasn't as good uh, 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 as the rest of the movie. It just, with the stuff that sticks out to me. So it's not a five star and a heart movie for me, but um, but it, I still had a, a good experience. And I'll tell you that last, you know, when they all start going back down, right, I found myself really impacted by that. And I think it's because of just where I am personally, right? Like I am, I am still very sort of um, connected to this experience of grief. And the whole idea of having this life that you rediscover after so many years, and then lose it again, uh, I was I was pretty crushed, like, in that, like, I was like, really moved by the the last part of this movie i i found it incredibly impactful like that that experience of grief and so uh i don't i don't think i would be as moved in any other time in my life but right now it hit me pretty hard so and, and yeah i mean that hit me too cuz think about that like he he's awake yeah and unlike when he was a kid he knows what's coming yes and he has to unfortunately acknowledge that that's what's left for him is going back into that state yeah and how terrifying and that's all i could think about like this has to be like this is a horror movie like this is the most frightening thing yeah. that for him and and for all the other patients as well surely that they know this is what's left for them they get to enjoy their last few moments but then they're going to fall back into that state and not come out again yeah right oh Geez, just awful, really frightening stuff. And that, again, that's that's why the ending works so well when Robin Williams, or I should say Dr. Sayer, opens his window and calls out to uh, to Eleanor down below. And like that's that's why there's those moments and that moment on the beach and, or on the, kind of when De Niro is standing on the rock and stuff like those are those little things. And it's like to that end, that's why it is a powerful story about Dr. Sayer acknowledging I need to break out of the shell because I, I can't be trapped in a shell like they're trapped in the shell. And yeah, it, true. that's, that's what made, that's what I, that's what really stuck with me as time passed. And I thought about the film and I'm like, God, there's a lot more there that I didn't acknowledge initially. So yeah, it's, it's, yeah. A, it's a good one. It's a good one. All right. Well, we will be right back for our ratings, but first here is the trailer for next week's movie, Rambling Rose. Evidently, she has been quite promiscuous since early childhood. I hope and believe that you found a safe haven in this house, honey. Generating over $6 million at the box office, Rambling Rose has positioned real-life mother-daughter team Diane Ladd and Laura Dern as odds-on favorites for 1991 Academy Award nominations. Oh, God. Oh, God. It's challenging and exciting to see a film that dares to, an American film that dares to deal with sexuality. What are they doing? Teddy's out. 
You just don't understand. It isn't sex that she wants. It's love. I'm 13 and I have a natural curiosity, Rose. It's nature, Rose. Now what's wrong with nature? The film's superb cast includes Laura Dern of Wild at Heart. A girl strikes like a cobra. Oscar winner Robert Duvall of The Godfather. Why shouldn't she have boyfriends? Don't you think she's human the same way as you are yourself? And Oscar nominee Diane Ladd of Wild at Heart and A Kiss Before Dying. Mr. Hillier, I know I was bad and I had not to have done it. But I am only a human girl person. I loved it, raves Rex Reed. Rose, we'll lie like a child. Now, she's no more pregnant than I. I am. No, you're yes, not. I no, am. you're not. Yes, no, you're not. Yes, I am. It's a beauty, richly comic and touching, writes Peter Travers of Rolling Stone magazine. I doubt this is the most fascinating experience of my life. To help stores tell renters all about this film, Live's Rambling Rose merchandising kit includes two terrific multi-use shelf shouters, along with a 3D mobile and a 3D counter card. Liberation is at hand. Rose, I found you a job in Tennessee. Live's new and improved buyback prepack offers retailers a great opportunity to increase rental profits on this title. Buy Rambling Rose in any three or five pack combination. After 60 days, return as many single units as you'd like for $15 cash per unit. See details on the sell sheet or ask your live home video sales manager. You never guess what happened. I had met Mr. Wright. Rambling Rose, available with a new and improved buyback offer. You know, I got to say, Rambling Rose, Pete, I am a little nervous to watch it because all of the people who have talked about it so far are like, oh boy, you're going to have a wild time talking about this crazy thing. I don't know how you're going to pull it off. So I'm very curious about seeing this movie now. <laughs> no, me too. Yeah. Uh, all right, Andy, Letterboxd. So where do you end up Whew. on your review and rating for this movie? Letterboxd. Letterboxd. I... You're familiar with Letterboxd, are you? What is Letterboxd again? <laughs> uh, I think we need to create the pan and scanned uh, website. <laughs> Saying again, yeah, pan and scan. Pan and no, S C A N D scanned. Oh, pan and scanned. Yeah, okay. Scanned. All right. yeah. Let's just remove all the vowels. Vowels. All the values. <laughs> yeah. There will be no values. Right. I, I got more out of this film i i think i'm gonna say four stars i'm gonna give it a like um but really, really it's more Tinder for the performances yeah. well i'm giving it because i think the performances are really solid and i i enjoy what i got out of it but i'm not gonna return to this one again anytime soon so uh, I mean, I, so I could I could fluctuate on the heart. Say four stars, no heart, because I I really appreciate what they're doing. I think there's a lot to the story. I just don't love it as a film. I think I'll still give it a heart because I mean, what what uh, De Niro and Williams did was um, mighty impressive. So that's where I'll land. Four stars and a heart. I um, I'm I'm with you. I feel like I would have been four stars with a heart before our conversation. Um, <laughs> and I've been trying. I've been trying to. I don't know why I just this weekend I was like, ah, do, do I really need half stars anymore? Maybe I just need to be a full star guy. It's either three stars or it's four stars. Oh my gosh. I know. It's, and you I may be overthinking it. Into all this. You might be. 
Especially because I just gave Kimmy <laughs> one and a half stars. Why did I do that? That should be a one star movie, but I gave it a half a star. I feel like this is a three star movie, but I am also going to give it a heart. I, uh, I enjoyed my time with it. It is not a, a bad movie in any stretch. It impacted me and I think all the right places. There's just enough artifice that, uh, in, in that sort of second to third act that, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I there hear you go. You. I hear yeah. You. All right. There, oh, so there we, it is. We so, split it. That's good. That's good. So what did you think about Awakenings? We want to know. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community where we're going to be talking about this movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Letterbox sometimes doeth, and sometimes when you hit the bottom of the barrel, you find the gold. That is where the gold <laughs> lives. Yeah, sometimes it's it's buried low. Sometimes it's right on top, but hey, yeah, today we're, we're going to the depths. You have to plumb the depths. Uh, would you like to begin? Would you like me to begin? Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll, I'll okay. kick things off. Okay. A half star by the renderer who has this to say. Of all the movies I've ever seen, this one still remains the one I mention whenever people ask me if I have a, quote, least favorite movie of all time, end quote. It's a cloying, corny, simpering Hollywood flim-flam designed to squeeze the audience dry like a wet rag. As the Fancy Feast commercial went, good taste is easy to recognize. And it is in short supply here. So much more. Oh, my God. And to bring us to a fancy feast That has been rendered. <laughs> it has been rendered. Well, Brent comes in with a half star, uh, also not loving this movie. Brent says, good sad movies are like getting stabbed with a butcher knife. It cuts right to your heart. And like that, you're changed. Bad, sad movies are like getting stabbed with a butter knife. It's slow, excruciating, and when it reaches your heart, you've already died of blood loss. <laughs> okay. So good. So Awakenings is that the latter, <laughs> I guess? <laughs> I shall like those reviews. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, 
Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>